Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alatur Shujan, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut. A quick disclaimer before we start, all opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. We're back with this week's episode of Ambulatory Series, and today we will be discussing chronic kidney disease, or CKD. More specifically, our goal will be to better understand appropriate workup for newly diagnosed CKD, recognize cardiovascular complications related to CKD, discuss therapies available for patients diagnosed with diabetic kidney disease, and go over etiologies of hypo and hyperkalemia in this patient population. Let's start off by defining CKD. CKD is defined as a decrease in GFR over time, usually three months. Three months was selected as an arbitrary time period to help differentiate CKD from an acute kidney injury. The clinician's best friend in diagnosing CKD is the creatinine levels and glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, trend over time. A true estimation of GFR can be tricky, though, It requires a 24-hour urine sample collection, so urine creatinine can be measured. Urine creatinine is later divided by plasma creatinine, producing GFR. Because 24-hour urine collection is cumbersome and impractical to perform, eGFR calculators instead have been used, which have their own limitations. The calculation uses creatinine and typically reports two eGFRs based on the presumed race of the patient with mutually exclusive categories of black and white only. The assumption of the patient's race and the pitfalls of using race as a reliable guide in calculating eGFR introduces biases that are more than academic and include considerations of transplant candidacy, medication dosing and access, and financial repercussions. Additionally, it is not clear what to do with other patient categories as other patient groups were not represented in the original calculation. As of September 2021, American Society of Nephrology and the National Kidney Foundation recommend using the Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology or CKD-EPI calculation, which drops race from the equation and is found to be sufficiently accurate predictor of GFR. Now that we know that creatinine is used in calculation of eGFR, it is important to note that creatinine level can be affected by different physiological variables. The production of creatinine varies greatly with muscle mass, for example. Bodybuilders may have higher creatinine because of larger muscle mass. Additionally, if creatinine supplements are used, they may affect creatinine levels. However, if supplements are held briefly, creatinine usually returns quickly to the baseline. Diabetics, amputees, class 3 or 4 heart failure patients, elderly, and patients with cirrhosis often produce much less creatinine than expected per kg of body weight. Serum cystatin C is another marker of kidney function that is not muscle mass dependent and is freely filtered through the glomeruli that has been considered earlier. As promising as it initially sounded, this marker was found to be affected by patients' fat mass, age, and inflammatory state. In addition, in testing against creatinine, cystatin was not found to be more accurate. Since our discussion today is focused on ambulatory approach to CKD, 
Let's talk about what happens when you diagnose CKD in the outpatient setting, how to work it up, and when to send a patient to a nephrologist. For patients with diabetic-related and organ disease such as neuropathy, worsening GFR over a decade, uncontrolled hypertension, proteinuria, and a benign microscopic urinalysis, usually no other diagnostic testing is needed to make the diagnosis. If urinalysis shows dysmorphic red cells, red or white cell casts, further workup would be warranted to establish the diagnosis, which is beyond the scope of this discussion for today. In addition to an active urine, a high calcium, anemia, autoimmune history, or abnormal anatomy on ultrasound, all suggest alternative diagnoses and are beyond the scope of our discussion for today. Because diabetes and hypertension are responsible for overwhelming majority of the CKD in the US, let's focus on them. So you diagnosed CKD that is due to diabetic or hypertensive nephropathy. Now, how do you know when to send your patient to a nephrologist versus continuing to manage them under your care? Patients with GFR below 30 mLs per minute should be uniformly co-managed with a nephrologist to ensure preparation for dialysis, control of metabolic sequelae of late-stage CKD, as well as consideration for transplant. Important to point out that if renal function is declining quickly, patients may be referred to a nephrologist sooner. Some of the data that I found surprising was that only 1.9% of patients with CKD progress to end-stage renal disease. The remaining 98% are likely to die prior to needing renal replacement therapy. This is why strict control of cardiovascular risks such as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, obesity, tobacco use is critical in extending lifespan of patients with CKD. Proteinuria, independent of diminished GFR in both diabetics and non-diabetics, remains a time-tested marker for cardiovascular death and all-cause mortality. Now that we've covered the most common etiologies of CKD in the U.S. and risk factors associated with them, let's talk about available therapies. Let's start with management of hypertension. RAS blockade is very important in proteinuric CKD because it has been shown to decrease proteinuria and progression of CKD. In patients with controlled blood pressure without heart failure, mortality benefits from RAS blockade have been more difficult to prove. Remember that ACE inhibitors and ARPs may bump the creatinine by decreasing intraglomerular pressure by selectively dilating the efferent arteriole, but this is not something that's clinically concerning, you still keep patients on this therapy. Moreover, there is no GFR below which we hold ACE inhibitors or ARPs. Acute kidney injury is the obvious exception. Use of diuretics has a place in management of hypertension and edema in CKD patients, but there are some caveats to the therapy. As GFR decreases, diuretics such as hydrochlorothiazide that work on distal convoluted tubule have a more limited effect. Loop diuretics that function on the loop of Hanley can be used instead. Torsamide is usually preferred because it is longer acting compared to some other loop diuretics. Remember that diuretics attach to albumin and are secreted into the tubules via a pump. As proteinuria progresses, the diuretics may lose their effectiveness as they preferentially bind to the protein in the tubule and not the sodium transporter, rendering them ineffective. When deciding to start patient on a diuretic, 
important to realize that relationship between edema and mortality has not been established. Now that we've talked about management of hypertension in patients with CKD related to elevated blood pressure, let's talk a little bit more about diabetic medications to use in patients with diabetic nephropathy. There is growing evidence showing benefits of using empagliflozin in diabetic patients with CKD. Empagliflozin was found to decrease all-cause and cardiovascular mortality, decreasing admission for heart failure. Canagliflozin was another agent from SGL22 inhibitor class that demonstrated protective effects on cardiovascular mortality, progression to ESRD, need for transplantation, and hospitalizations for heart failure. Finally, let's talk about derangements of potassium in patients with CKD. Both hypo and hyperkalemia are known to be markers of increased mortality. However, typically patients die with these electrolyte derangements rather than from them. In most diabetic hypertensive patients with CKD, we usually worry about hyperkalemia. Other etiologies of hyperkalemia important to know are type 4 renal tubular acidosis, ACE inhibitor or ARP therapy, as well as aldosterone blocking therapy. Low potassium, on the other hand, in CKD patients can be seen either on hydrochlorothiazide therapy, patients with hyperaldosteronism from adrenal adenoma, or patients with renal artery stenosis. In some patients, a combination of diuretic and a PPI can cause hypomagnesemia, leading to low potassium. So let's summarize. CKD is best diagnosed when you have a track record of creatinine change over time. Medical history is very important in diagnosing CKD, as majority of CKD cases in the U.S. are from hypertensive or diabetic nephropathy, and controlling these conditions with the right medications can help slow down the damage. All patients with proteinuria should be on an ACE on an ARP therapy. SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to lower cardiovascular complications, CKD progression, and all-cause mortality in patients with CKD. Lastly, patients with CKD should have close monitoring of their potassium levels, as medication interactions can precipitate hypo or hyperkalemia. We hope you learned something new today. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in our next episode.